When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, Deputy Digital Editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, could the pandemic be the death of small businesses? The corporate finance network of regional accounting firms in Britain has said that fifth of firms will run out of money this month. And games of moral hazard. As governments try to ease the pain, could bailouts have unintended consequences? You have a separation between the person taking risks and the entities that may end up being on the hook for the cost of those risks. But first, as stock markets crumbled in response to the COVID-19 crisis, hedge funds often seen as the buccaneers of the financial world, have suffered less damage than most investors. Some have made money by betting against the shares of companies under pressure. This comes after a decade of underperformance. So, do hedge funds avoid the worst in times of economic turmoil? In the first three months of 2020, the S&P 500 fell about 20%, and it's rallied a little bit since, but that sort of gives us a benchmark against which we can compare hedge funds. Alice Fullwood is The Economist's Wall Street correspondent. On average, they have done much better than that. They were down an average of 8% uh, to the end of March, so not a sort of stellar performance, but still much better than the stock market delivered. But there was a lot of variation within that 8%. So certain types of funds did much better than others at being a safe place for investor cash during the COVID crisis. And Alice, which funds have been performing well during this chaotic period? So you can group hedge funds into four main different categories. These are the activist funds, the ones who sort of bully corporate CEOs into pursuing different strategies. There are ones that pursue volatility strategies, which balance the volatility of assets across different classes. There are systematic funds who tend to use quantitative methods. And there are also macro funds uh, that place large bets based on what they think the economy will be doing. And the ones that have done best so far are the systematic funds, the quantitative funds. They were down just 3% in the first three months of this year versus uh, down 20% for the S&P 500. During this extraordinary period, obviously, there's been a lot of harking back to the last financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. What lessons have hedge fund managers learned from their experience there? So on average, during the last financial crisis, hedge funds actually did perform better than the stock market. So similar to now, they were a safer place to be during that last crisis. In terms of lessons that hedge fund managers learned, many of the most successful funds at that time had seen the crisis coming, had placed their bets accordingly. You know, there were movies made about how successful certain hedge funds had been. This crisis is very different in that it's not the type of event that you could really see coming months in advance from macroeconomic data. 
like the last one was. And so funds that have done very well during this period have been ones that have pivoted very quickly to incorporating news about the pandemic. And that may be one reason why quantitative funds seem to have done a bit better because they tend to have a slightly shorter time horizon than other types of fund. But you have seen sort of many more traditional discretionary funds do well as well, ones that have really pivoted early to taking the outbreak very seriously and positioning their portfolio accordingly. And do we think that theme is likely to continue? The funds who've reacted very well so far, are they likely to be the ones who are going to keep performing well or could there be trouble ahead for all of them? So hedge funds have been in trouble for a few years now. Post the global financial crisis, returns from being invested in a hedge fund have really sagged relative to other investment options that investors have. And you've seen funds closing their doors, more funds close every year at the moment than are started. Investors are pulling money out, fees that were sort of famously 2 and 20% that hedge funds would would charge have come lower as funds have struggled to compete with other options for investors like passive funds or private equity funds. So hedge funds came into this crisis in, a, in quite a rough spot. And what you've seen is a sort of reinforcement of a recent trend, which is that the biggest funds are doing better than the smaller funds. So you're probably still likely to see some shuttering of smaller funds, a reduction in the overall size of the hedge fund industry. But you know, given that the bigger funds are doing better, that they have done better than the market, it suggests that you might see a consolidation in the industry. And rather than a lot of very small funds, you'll see these few big dominant funds that can actually generate some outperformance. And one sign that they haven't all been doing well are these reports that some have even applied for the Paycheck Protection Programme, this enormous government fund to help out small businesses that are in trouble. Now, given the amount of money that sloshes through hedge funds in the amount that hedge fund managers are supposed to earn. This might strike people as being a little bit cheeky. I mean, what did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of cheeky or just outrageous. Um, One of the defining points of the scheme is that, you know, it's not extremely difficult to get access to. So you only really have to be a small business, i.e. have a small number of employees, and also be able to show that there's some way that your business has been affected by the pandemic. And of course, hedge funds are small businesses, they tend to have very few employees, and they their business has been affected by the pandemic because they have, you know, suffered as a result of the market um, turmoil. I don't know that it's optically a wise strategy for funds to go after the payment protection programme funds, you know, in part because their paychecks are significantly larger than those that the government was probably trying to uh, salvage through this scheme. And, um, you know, I guess uh, if you're looking for an indicator that a lot of hedge funds don't necessarily think that this is wise, even the lobbying group for hedge funds says that they don't recommend that funds do actually apply for this scheme and reminded uh, those that had the, um, the list of companies that receive money out of the scheme will probably become public at some point. So uh, some have allegedly been applying, but I don't know that that's wise. Now, that apart, is the crisis likely to change the way that the industry operates, do you think? I think it's likely to reinforce some of the existing trends that we were seeing, which is this increased embracing of quantitative methods and machine learning. Those are the funds that did better during this period. And that's likely to only sort of accelerate more funds adopting those types of techniques. It's also helped the biggest funds, as I mentioned. And so, you know, continued consolidation, the sort of shuttering of small funds. Both those trends seem likely to continue. Alice Fulwood, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Patrick. 
and you can read Alice's story in the upcoming edition of The Economist. If you don't have a subscription, why not try one? Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. In the United States, the price of oil has gone negative. For the first time ever, oil producers are paying buyers. Now, that's the result of fears that storage capacity could run out in May because of the slump in global demand. President Donald Trump has worked to reverse the collapse in oil prices, coordinating an output cut with OPEC countries and with Russia, so far plainly to little avail. The Economist's energy correspondent, Charlotte Howard, has been assessing Mr Trump's deal on the Checks and Balance podcast. He likes to think of himself as a deal maker, right? In some ways, this was him in his element. He had a role in helping to forge this big deal. It helps to support different governments around the world, as well as support America's domestic energy industry. It comes at little monetary cost to America, and that's because he hasn't actually promised to do anything. And that's what's sort of interesting about this deal and Donald Trump trying to figure out his role on the global stage when it comes to energy. He's not actually an autocrat. He's not actually the head of a petrostate in the way that Mohammed bin Salman is in Saudi Arabia or Vladimir Putin is in Russia, because there are more than 9,000 oil and gas producers in America. He doesn't actually have control over them. So it was an interesting deal in that it both showed how Donald Trump is trying to exert his influence, but it also revealed the limits of his power when it comes to brokering these global deals, and particularly the limits when it comes to making them stick. To hear more, listen to Checks and Balance on Economist Radio. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The global pandemic has brought chronic uncertainty to millions of business owners around the world. In response, governments have rolled out generous support packages. In Britain, the coronavirus job retention scheme was launched this week. The programme will fund 80% of furloughed workers' wages, up to £2,500 a month. That's about $3,000. But this might not be enough. There are nearly six million small and medium enterprises in Britain. Will they be able to survive? We haven't seen insolvency rates tick up yet substantially, but there's no doubt that a growing number of companies are dying. Tamsin Booth is The Economist's technology and business editor. I think the real stress point is going to come around the summer. You're going to get a lot of financial distress by the sort of June, July, August period. Already, the corporate finance network of regional accounting firms in Britain has said that fifth of firms will run out of money this month. But Tamsin, the British government is trying to stop this from happening. What exactly are they doing? I think what we're seeing really is heroic intentions 
but a rather shambolic reality. What's being done falls into two buckets. The first bit is the furloughing of staff scheme. And so far, um, that hasn't been put to the test. So we're going to see if that functions well. But what small business is, is really worried about is that that furlough scheme may resemble the other bucket of government help, which is the coronavirus business interruption loan scheme. And so far it has failed. So basically you get a loan of up to £25,000 interest-free for the first year. But of the 300,000 firms that sought help by mid-April, only 1.4% had actually received loans. The numbers have improved um, somewhat, But for the past week or so, the British papers have been full of tales of woe, of furniture makers, coach companies, small hotels, family-run businesses across the country not getting the loans that they're entitled to. So it's been a big problem. Why isn't this process working for British businesses? The overriding reason is that you've got a huge number of small companies. You've got nearly six million of them. And granting loans requires checking things. It requires detailed look at people's finances, checking boxes, a lot of due diligence. And it's just a huge volume of work. So that's the number one reason. And the reality is that pre-COVID, probably about a tenth of small businesses in Britain weren't financially viable. So you can't, if you're a bank, um, fling money at them without um, doing some due diligence. The second reason is a procedural one. The Coronavirus Business Interruption Loan Scheme is running on a process of the British Business Bank, which is a state lender. And it's an antiquated process. It's called the Enterprise Guarantee Scheme. It's not even digitised. You have to manually input all the details. And so it takes, I was talking to um, uh, Lloyd's Banking Group, and they say that it takes about two hours to process an application. And so if you multiply that by six million companies, it's just an awful lot of time. One of the firms I spoke to about the process was Global Coach, a football animation software company based in Liverpool, Global Coach's boss, Emile Coleman, has been dealing with NatWest and hasn't had a great deal of success so far. Global Coach was created in 2012 by Rafa Benitez, the ex-Liverpool and Inter Milan and Real Madrid manager, because there was a need for technical and training software, which wasn't available at the time. We quickly grew. A year later, I bought the company outright, and now we work across the world with some of the biggest football clubs and national teams uh, globally. The pandemic had a massive impact quite quickly on football because obviously the restrictions that were put in place globally in terms of of mass gatherings, football was directly affected very, very quickly. That affected us right away and it was a very stark effect. Uh, Clubs shut down, there was nobody there to process payments, there was no one there to sell to essentially and this time of the year is massively important for us. And the result of that is that you feel that the company is very much eligible for the government's coronavirus business interruption loan scheme. Tell us briefly what happened when you approached your relationship bank NatWest, a unit of RBS, to get one of those loans. 
When the Chancellor announced the CBILS scheme, we engaged with them, I mean, literally within minutes of that, and we were hit with roadblocks throughout. Uh, There wasn't a focus on the CBILS scheme itself. There was more of a focus on the company and me as an individual, as the owner of that company, in terms of from a personal asset and liabilities perspective, and also a guarantee perspective, which effectively is ruling us out from accessing that scheme. You know, of course, NatWest does have a right to have a good look at the company's finance. After all, the banks are on the hook for 20% of the loans that are extended under this scheme. What do you think NatWest in particular were looking at and were raising questions about? So in terms of our situation, we had a long-standing repayable grant from our local city council, which is tied to job creation, uh, which sits on our balance sheet, but isn't serviceable. We also had a very little short-term debt, but we had two write-downs for loans last year, um, which in turn is taxable for ourselves. So uh, it was frustrating for us because we have actually very little real-time debt, very little serviceable debt, but we also had a huge amount outstanding to us, payable from clubs. We had just under £200,000 due to come in at this point, but obviously there's nobody there to process these payments. And given the amount of concern that there has been over the slow issuance of these CBILS loans, are you optimistic that one will be forthcoming? Um, I'm not optimistic that one would be forthcoming without an actual change from the government. Uh, I think there needs to be clear instructions to the banks in terms of how they can deliver the scheme in itself. You're being asked to forecast uh, in this climate. How can you forecast anything in a climate when you don't know actually when you're going to have freedom of movement and be able to do business again properly? So Tamsin, that's the experience of just one small British company. What do we know about the way these assistance funds for small businesses are working in other countries? Well, I don't think it's easy for rich economies anywhere, I mean, just because of the sheer volume of the number of these small firms. So in the US, there have also been a lot of headlines. They had a $350 billion rescue fund aimed at small businesses, and the money went in minutes. Apparently, one banker described it as a stampede through the eye of a needle. So many businesses applied. I mean, you've got 30 million SMEs in the US compared to nearly 6 million here. So the volume was extraordinary. And there, these were 100% guaranteed loans by the government. So perhaps the processing time was quicker, but that meant the money went immediately. I think the US government is now um, looking to replenish that fund to the tune of $450 billion. But according to estimates, about $1.8 trillion may be needed if you're to support this many small businesses through a prolonged lockdown. How might these initiatives be run more effectively and more sustainably, both in Britain and in other countries? Well, I think it is just very difficult for governments to support this volume of small companies. In terms of effectiveness, you're running into bureaucratic processes. And in terms of sustainability, the numbers you're talking about are really huge. The problem with one-size-fits-all schemes, which, which these inevitably are, is that you will give money to undeserving firms. And also good companies sometimes simply won't get it. For instance, in Britain, um, if you're a so-called, if you're defined as an undertaking in difficulty, you can't access the CBILS scheme. It doesn't take much to be an undertaking in difficulty. You just have to have a lot of historic losses. But lots of companies that are really thriving now have losses like that. 
The other problem with these schemes is that it's still um, in, in Britain, in various countries, this is debt that's being given. It's not as if the government is taking stakes in firms. So it's debt, yes, it's interest-free for the first year, but it will have to be paid back at some point, which is going to saddle a lot of young um, small firms with interest payments that they can't afford. And indeed, um, some bankers and SME lenders say that in the long run, if the lockdown goes on for a long time, and especially in the case of larger firms, the government may eventually have to take equity, not just um, make loans. And the other problem is that the state just has quite clunky systems and the administrative bureaucratic burden of processing these helpful measures for small business is enormous, as well as the cost. So in terms of sustainability, I think the only answer to make these schemes work is to try and contain the duration of the lockdown so that firms can get back to being self-sufficient as quickly as possible. Tamsin Booth, thank you. You're welcome, thank you. And our thanks to Emile Coleman of Global Coach. As businesses of all sizes, individuals and even governments try to tap into the rescue packages they desperately need, there is a growing debate about whether these bailouts could have unintended consequences. As America's initial $2 trillion rescue deal was being hammered out in Congress, economically conservative policymakers, like Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, argued against overgenerous unemployment benefits. You're literally incentivizing taking people out of the workforce at a time when we need critical infrastructure supplied with workers. On the left, Robert Reich, an economist and former US Labor Secretary under Bill Clinton, is among those arguing it's corporate rescue packages that pose the real danger. What about the bailouts of these big companies that went deep into debt in order to buy back their shares of stock? Do you hear a peep? Out of the Republicans? Economists, naturally, have a name for this kind of risk, moral hazard. So moral hazard is a situation when you have a separation between the person taking risks and the entities that may end up being on the hook for the cost of those risks. There's an incentive for one of the parties to kind of abuse the autonomy it has to take excessive risk. Ryan Avent is our free exchange economics columnist. There are concerns about moral hazard anytime you have have bailout schemes. There's particular concern now because of the enormous scale. Uh, if you look at the size of stimulus packages, for instance, which contain a lot of help for jobless workers and struggling firms, they are on pace to dramatically outstrip those that were offered during the global financial crisis. The IMF, in a report released last week, noted that across the rich world, these packages amount to like 10% of GDP, which is just a staggering figure. Now, in America, there have been some concerns expressed very specifically about this, that overgenerous unemployment benefits could create a strong incentive for employees to be laid off instead of going to work, i.e. a moral hazard. What's the evidence that that might be true? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that there is much evidence. I mean, I think under normal circumstances, you know, we would want to be careful in offering kind of no strings attached aid to workers as that might, you know, allow them to stay out of the workforce for longer. But, 
you know, there's a few things that, that sort of cut against that in this particular situation. You know, one is that part of the reason we're offering these generous packages is we don't want a lot of people to go to work. That's the entire point of the lockdowns. And so I think everyone kind of recognizes this is an extraordinary circumstance and maybe these normal concerns don't necessarily apply in the way we think they would. If you look particularly at the U.S. situation, workers who want to get the unemployment benefits, you can't get them if you quit, right? You have to be laid off. It's a decision that the firm makes. The benefits that workers receive now have been made more generous by this $2 trillion stimulus program, but I'm not sure that anyone is assuming that that sort of top-up that's been provided through the program will last indefinitely. I think it's, it's pretty clear that that's not going to be the case. So I, I think a lot of those concerns, particularly as they relate to workers, are a little overstated. And what about the counter-concern from the left, from people like the economist Robert Reich, who argue that it's large corporations that create the real moral hazard? Reich argues they've been able to rack up debt to fund share buybacks and are now being bailed out, apparently with few consequences. Does he have a point? I think he has something of a point, at least in the immediate term. The aid to these sorts of business, I think, is totally justified. The most responsible executive in the world would not have done the preparations that would have been needed to survive this. And so I think that, narrowly speaking, things like buybacks and dividend payments, they're just not relevant here. They wouldn't have made a difference. Having said that, you know, if we look at the experience of the global financial crisis, there was a lot of aid given to banks and that aid was given because the economy needed to be protected from a more complete collapse and needed to rebound. I think what you would have wanted to see after that was some sort of regulatory effort to make sure that incentives did become aligned in the way we'd want them to after the bailouts. And that didn't really materialize in a lot of cases. I think there is a concern that once this is all over, the companies that did receive a lot of aid won't necessarily take the steps that we'd want to see them take to not rack up more mundane sorts of risks that could eventually put themselves in trouble again and needing taxpayer help. And is there an argument for governments to take equity stakes in companies that they bail out? I mean, that's what happened with banks in a lot of countries during the financial crisis. In fact, governments have still got stakes in quite a few banks in a few places, not least in the UK. I think there is a case for it. And in some economies, there has been sort of active policy discussion about this. I believe Sweden has been discussing the possibility that the government might take stakes even in small and medium-sized enterprises, not just the kind of large firms. I think economically, it makes a lot of sense. There's got to be a lot of concern about the government's capacity to manage all these things. Is it an active investor? Those sorts of questions. And then I think economically conservative officials who are skeptical about moral hazard concerns in general, they're probably also likely to view this sort of dubiously, the idea that government might suddenly take in a massive equity stake in, in uh, huge ways of the economy. And as time goes on, you know, as the pandemic progresses, peaks, we hope, and begins to run its course, we start thinking about reopening bits of the economy. Does the balance between risk and reward, the way we think about moral hazard, will that start to shift, do you think? I do think it will start to become more complicated managing all these various concerns as we get closer to opening back up. Will we be in a situation where we really do want lots of workers to get back on the job right away? You have to sort of think much more carefully about how you're designing income top-up programs and things of that nature. It also becomes really tricky when you're thinking about aid to heavily indebted poor countries. As we start to exit pandemic conditions, are we really encouraging countries to take on debts that they can't sustain? I think it's something we need to be aware of, but it's important to know that that's not where we are right now. There's no question, Ryan, this is an extraordinary event. Are we thinking about this the wrong way, too narrowly perhaps? I mean, should the pandemic change how we think about moral hazard and collective responsibility in the longer term? It's an important question. You might think in that situation that it's okay to help firms. Everyone understands these circumstances are extraordinary. They're not going to draw massive conclusions about how likely they are to get aid going forward. 
but one thing that gives me pause is the fact that actually maybe these sort of act of God type disasters might not necessarily be as infrequent in the future as they have been in the past because of things like climate change. You know, we know that risks associated with that are increasing. And so I think we do need to think a little bit about how much personal responsibility we want individuals and firms to take for protecting themselves against these kinds of disasters. So hopefully if, if there are good things to come out of all of this, one of them will be that we think a little bit harder about how to manage the risks of, of big looming difficulties associated with things like climate change and what that means for incentives and moral hazard. Let's hope you're right. Ryan Avent, thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Patrick Lane. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.